Greetings everyone out there in New Legacy Land. This is Amari Fox with the South Carolina Progressive Network. I'm here with my mentor. We're having car talk. We're on the way to a uh, function in uh, Charleston and check out some more allies who do some great things in uh, the art and community. But right now we're going to do some car talk with uh, Dr. Frank Martin, who is uh, my mentor and a leader in intellectualism and things of that nature. I'll let him tell a little bit more about his uh, credentials. A long story short is uh, young folks trying to find their way in education and in life. You get in his class, you have an encounter, you come to the museum, and uh, he often clarifies that which looks and befuddles us you know, on our path to wherever we're trying to go. So without further ado, greetings, Frank. How you doing today? I'm fantastic. How are you doing? I'm alive. All right, let's cut straight to the chase. Tell us a little bit about your credentials and your path to your doctoral status and just a couple of uh, frank fun facts if you will just so we can get a feel for you although i know you're world famous already this is for that one or two percent of the people who don't know who you are well a frank fun fact is i can recite jabberwocky in english french and german uh and some people may not know what jabberwocky is it's of course lewis carroll poem that it's about illogic. Twas breathing in the sleepy toes, the gyre and gimble in the wave, all mimsy where the bar goes, and the moment rats out grave. And of course, in French, it would be il brille que des taux plus de ce giron vrillant dans la guave. On mime sur les couches muscles, les momerades au grave. And in German, it's es privig war de schlickle toe, and vierten, and vinnelten, and barben, and alle mumsige borger go from the mumen recht ausgraben. And it could go on for the rest of the thing. But uh, in terms of my credentials. Where were you from, first off? Where were you from? I'm from Sumter, South Carolina, and I was born in Sumter and attended school there when I had a fantastic education and grew up in, actually I grew up in a family of educators which probably shaped my past to a great extent because instead of going to kindergarten I just sat with my great aunt Anna and she read to me and told me stories and told me about our family and so I got more one-on-one -on -one attention, which means that I was pretty much a spoiled brat as a kid. But I think it worked in my favor in terms of my enjoyment of intellection because I was always encouraged to respect the ideas and to respect the um, engagement with others, including well, as a child engaging with adults, to understand their points of view. And so now I always try to listen to young people when they're uh, Give me information about their experiences in the world. All right, tell us uh, a little bit about your schooling, and then uh, we'll jump into some questions if it's that, if that's okay. Well, schooling. So I went to schools in Sumter, public schools in Sumter, and I left Sumter to go to Connecticut, where I attended Yale University. And I left Yale to begin work at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And while I was there. I also attended the City University of New York at Hunter College, where I had fantastic teachers. Well, I had fantastic teachers at Yale, too, of course. And the most impressive thing about Yale would have been the libraries, as well as some of the programming and the resources, because I majored in art history. So it was a wonderful experience overall for me at Yale. And then it went to Hunter, and I was in New York City, so that was even better, and I was working at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, so that was another enhancement. And then um, I got into the uh, graduate program at the Institute of Fine Arts at New York University and studied things like art conservation and contemporary art theory, and that was amazing. Then I came to South Carolina 
and um, I was working with a luminary of South Carolina's art scene, Dr. Leo Franklin Twiggs, who was a brilliant batik artist, and he encouraged me to go back to school. And I had already, like I said, been at uh, NYU, but I wanted to go closer to home, but there was no art history uh, post, well, you know, terminal degree program in South Carolina, so I had to switch fields. And I ended up going into philosophy because the closest thing to art history I could find would have been doing aesthetics, so I decided to go into the field of axiology, specializing in aesthetics, specializing in the history of aesthetics, and that's what I uh, actually ended up getting the terminal degree in. So, yeah. All right. Appreciate that. We're going to just uh, jump right in a few questions. So, coming out of the program that you just left, and I know some other race challenges and reconcilable uh, hypocrisies that our region often has. Um, what are your thoughts about um, the importance of narrative and who tells it? Your position on race, is it a construct, reification, and any, I'll let you jump right in and uh, tell your narrative. Well, my narrative is odd because I don't think I realized there was a thing such as race until I was about 13. And that happened in part because I was one of the earlier uh, students to enter into an integrated school system in South Carolina. And I was suddenly confronted with this you know, thing that people were calling race and because uh, it had never been of very much importance in our household. That's not true for a lot of families. And of course, we had grown up in a largely African-American community, but it seemed to me like there were a lot of diverse uh, interactions. But as a child, I mean, I just wasn't that aware. So when I was young, race didn't seem to be that important to me. And the other thing is that my family looked very diverse because of, uh, well, I guess because of the history of enslavement and the reality of uh, what happened with uh, families having mixed parentage and mixed ancestry. So a lot of my relatives, I didn't know, I mean, well, no one went around asking what your cousin was, if they were white or black, or they just, you know, you'd see people and they look like one thing or the other. So I just wasn't thinking about race at all until much later. And I seemed to find that people who had to, who were confronted with having to think about race, because I was just in this insular, very protected environment, um, but if people were exposed to racism and to the evil and hateful and insidious things that can happen to people because of someone's idea about race, the, uh, a lot of people I knew seemed to be very badly traumatized by race. So it was mo very important for some of my friends to structure having a black identity. But it seemed to me that structuring a black identity was to accept the imposition of a racial designation from some external entity, and that didn't seem to be really a kind of uh, self-definition or autonomy, because if someone's constructed an identity for you, then that did not seem to be authentic. And I didn't struggle with it. I just didn't think about it. I was more interested in what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. But I was very interested in the history of Americans of African descent because that had been part of my heritage and history. And my relatives always encouraged us to read about what Americans of African descent had accomplished as well as other people in the American you know, matrix. So race was a strange um, issue for me when I was growing up in terms of it just wasn't 
It's not that it was irrelevant, it just didn't seem to be all that important. And of course it had to be very important. Uh, it's just maybe I was in denial, I was ignoring the situation, I'm not sure. So that means that when I was away at school and when I uh, was seeking areas to specialize in, I didn't really think about race. I, I just focused on what I was interested in. And what I was interested in uh, might inhere race obliquely, but that wouldn't be the direct route. So, for example, when I was studying uh, Italian Renaissance art, I saw a picture, a portrait of Alessandro de Medici. As it turns out, he was uh, the first Duke of Florence, and he was a person of African ancestry. So I became interested in African identity, Afro-Europeans, uh, Africanity, what does it mean to have a continental African uh, cultural legacy and heritage? How does that incorporate or integrate into other kinds of identity? And so th that became the issue for me, which is more cultural than it is really racial. And I think that may be confusing to some people, but that was that's the basis of my interest. So I'm looking at how, as an American with African ancestry, how it is that my own family integrated into a Western cultural matrix and what kinds of Africanity would be retained in our family. And uh, there, there are things. There are traditions of respect and behavior that I think are very African from my own study of uh, you know, indigenous African cultures through looking at art and cultural artifacts and trying to understand traditional African ways of thinking. All right, I've heard you often say an American of African descent, you know, and I know you just expounded on Africanity and such. What do you feel is the advantage of one's perception or, or navigating, you know, America or the world as an American of African descent? And I know you touched on it a little bit about maybe the differences with like somebody like Obama running for um, president versus uh, Jesse Jackson, who has a very, you know, distinct American black identity. What do you what do you see as the, the advantage or rationale of why maybe America maybe offering that to black people, African-Americans as a way to navigate the world? Well, I guess the main difference for me is that as an American of African descent, that is almost more of an ethnicity than it is a race, because, and what's the difference between an ethnicity and a race? So an ethnicity is culturally driven uh, in terms of ethnicity may be defined in part through your belief systems, through your uh, kinds of language you may use, through the kinds of foods you may eat, through your dress. Uh, it is a cultural identity as opposed to a race and when people subdivide or want to subdivide into black or white dichotomies those racial identities seem to be fundamentally false just based on DNA alone. Most people, especially in America now, have, well not most, but maybe many people, especially peoples of African ancestry because of the history of enslavement and the impositions by enslavers, many people have a genetic heritage that is very mixed. I mean, I was coincidentally watching uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates and Jason and uh, Jason Stratham, the guy who's the uh, host on Good Morning America on ABC, I think, and it turns out he's a descendant of the uh, Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne, <laughs> who was like Michael Strahan. Michael Strahan. Michael Strahan. <laughs> wow. So he's a descendant of Charlemagne, and he's an American of African descent. So 
but his genes show this connection through his ancestry. And it's false for him to just say he's black because obviously his genes are saying, well, of course, you're African, you have African ancestors and African forebears, you also have some European forebears. And that's the reality. So that's the scientific truth. And if one has to construct a race-based identity, which is really mostly about appearance as opposed to about genetics, I think that is more limiting in being able to uh, actually respond to who one really is in terms of genetic authenticity, uh, cultural authenticity, and how you engage with the world. If I'm a person whose English is my first language, I was raised, born and raised in South Carolina, and if I've never had an opportunity to even visit continental Africa, making a claim of being an African seems to be false. But I am very proud of and very much celebrate my African heritage, and someday we'll eventually travel to to Africa to uh, investigate it more fully. Like, if I know I'm 35% uh, tribal groups from Nigeria, I really want to go and find my you know, ethnic peers to some extent in that kind of specificity. But you know, I'm also I have some you know French ancestry, English ancestry, etc. So I think it's difficult now to be who one is in one way because of the false constructs of race but in another way it's easier to be fully authentic because we can get such specific information about you know who we are where we come from and then how culture defines us becomes even more significant and i think that is now a more crucial issue about being in terms of being culturally defined as opposed to racially defined all right i want to jump into art a little bit but before we do um a lot of listeners to the podcast are, I guess, for lack of a better word, white allies. So what are, what are your thoughts about even the term white ally? And then what would you say to folks of European descent who admire, you know, the, our, our culture and our history and want to celebrate it with us, but also work with us in terms of justice and, you know, moving the needle forward of the race conversation, but also structurally? What would you say to a, to an ally, for lack of a better word? Well, I know the current um, use of terminology celebrates the idea of allies, and I know that there are people who construct identities as if white, who perhaps pride themselves on being so-called white allies, but the moment someone separates him or herself out from the rest of the population by a secondary characteristic like color, and I think you're going to create a lot of problems and it's going to create a conundrum that's like a, an infinite spiral downward into an abyss of race one way or the other if race is going to be a defining characteristic. So if someone's of European ancestry and they are interested in justice and they see that there's injustice perpetrated against people because they have pigmentation or because of their appearance or because of a designation of a status as a black person, then that person needs to just be a human ally. They need to be someone who's going to fight for justice to stop the injustice at its root. And if its root is structured around racial uh, constructions, then maybe race needs to be abolished. So some people say, well, how can I abolish race if I want to celebrate my heritage? Well, your heritage is your culture. Your heritage isn't a race, because there are people on the continent of Africa who are Semitic, who are indigenous Africans, um, now they are at least, and they're 
culture is you know been in Africa for tens of thousands of years. So it's not about race. Africanness is about people with connection to the continent. So if you're someone who wants to see, let's say you see a disproportionate uh, disposition by law enforcement to attack males with African descent in America um, because of the history of racism. So you want to know what you can do about it. Well, the first thing you can do is talk to other people who are of European ancestry about why that issue is important to make sure that justice is served for all human beings and justice should be accessible to everyone regardless of the economic level, regardless of the appearance, regardless of gender. And if people could begin to think more in terms of the absolute application of the idea of justice as opposed to the application of the idea of justice because of a color, I think that that could make a major shift in our conversation. It's a more subtle approach and it's easier, it's much easier to fall into camps of, you know, I'm a black person, I'm going to advocate for black people, I want black businesses and I'll do everything black, 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 black. And so then you have to decide who's black enough, and then those people are the people you're going to deal with. But then you're still reifying and reconstructing a racial uh, paradigm that was imposed from the beginning by someone who had a negative agenda. They were trying to create a situation to give themselves an economic advantage. Do you really want to, as a person who might be disadvantaged by the creation of a race construct, do you really want to perpetuate the idea of race at all? So that's something the Americans have to decide. They have to think about that. So race has historic value, but what is the value of race moving forward into the future? So a lot of people will say, well, you know, now it's popular, I can be black, I want to be black, I need to be black, 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 I can be my you know, authentic African self. Is it an authentic African self if you don't speak an indigenous African language, if you've never had any particular connection to an African culture? what is it that is exactly African? You have African genetics, but how African is your thinking? How African is your tradition? That's something that one might want to examine more carefully. And so all I'm suggesting is that people enter into this identity construction idea in a very holistic way. So I don't think there's one size that fits all. I don't If someone needs to construct a white or a black identity, I don't want to condemn that person. I'm not saying that at all. I just don't say, what I'm saying is I don't see a value in such a construction in terms of my own authentic engagement with trying to express myself because people can't be reduced to colors. And if someone wants to be an ally, then they simply should be an ally in terms of agreeing with those principles of justice, of equity, and equality, because they're slightly different, um, and being human and humane. So if we could all, well, it's not fair to ask all people to do it, but if people who are seeking greater justice strove to do those things, to be more human and more humane, and to engage with other people in an honorable and equitable and an integral way, I think that a lot could be done to enhance the quality of life for everyone. I appreciate the uh, thoughts. I guess while we're uh, beginning February, um, the, the shortest, why, why they gave us the shortest month. So um, I know a lot of people know, but a lot of people don't know the origins of um, Black Black History Month and you know why this month was chosen and just its evolution. So 
tell that one or two listeners that might not know a little bit about the history if it's cool and then um tell us a little bit about some art like maybe a, a frank fun fact or just why why art is important um not just to not just maybe as a tool in social justice but just you know quality of life for anybody okay well african-american history month or black history month as people call it started out as negro history week with uh, carter g woodson who was a very important african-american historian who wanted to improve the knowledge that young people of african ancestry had about the contributions in a global sense of persons of the African diaspora, and especially Americans of African descent. So he chose the month of February for African, uh, or Negro History Week is what it was called. I think it started in like 1922, uh, because it's the birth month of Frederick Douglass. It was also the birth month of W.B. Du Bois, and everyone probably already knows Frederick Douglass is an African-American abolitionist who um, was instrumental in helping to influence Abraham Lincoln and other abolitionists in the initiation of the Civil War. Uh, and W.B. Du Bois was one of the first African-Americans to obtain a terminal degree from Harvard University, the PhD in sociology, and he wrote an extraordinary paper, a sociological study of the African-American, the history of enslavement in America. So these are the two heroes of um, African-American intellection that are celebrated because of, well, it started out like it's a Negro History Week, which was expanded in 1976 on the occasion of the American uh, Bicentennial. America became 200 years old, and uh, the study of the participation of Americans of African descent was expanded to an entire month in recognition of the, uh, the, the sacrifice made by Christmas Addicts, who was, of course, one of the first to die in the Boston Massacre, which was in 1773 and would lead to the American Revolution. And, of course, Americans of African ancestry served in the Revolutionary War, and many were freed because of their service. And they served in almost every war uh, fought in the Americas, including the Seminole War, which was really a black war to, to, uh, of liberation for um, enslaved persons who had escaped and had uh, gotten to the border between Florida and Georgia and were fighting against the United States to uh, protect their freedom um, as part of the Seminole Nation. So this is, so Black History Month, African American History Month, is a period to celebrate understanding the contributions of diverse Americans and Americans of African descent in particular to the narrative that we create around what we think America is, which is both a very compelling narrative, a beautiful narrative, a frightening narrative, uh, and the more we know about it, I think the more interesting it actually is. So what is the, what's, what good is art? Why should we bother with art? What is, what is that stuff? So art, uh, and the way we use the term in the West, is a derivative of the Latin term ars, which literally translates as skill, and is the translation of the Greek word techne. So I'm talking to you through a device. It's recording my voice. Um, what techne does, what skill does, tools all enhance some ability we have. And so what technology is, it is a tool to enhance our abilities. So I don't have to be present for someone to hear my ideas anymore. I just have to make this recording. That can be 
put into several formats, can be broadcast to other people. So it extends the ability for me to communicate with other people. So this is techne, and this is precisely what art is. So the Greek word for art is techne, the Latin word is ars, and that means skill. So what an artist really is, is it's someone who is using skill to translate experience, either into a tangible object, or into an event, or into something that can be responded to and assessed by other people using their aesthesis. And aesthesis is the root word for the term aesthetics, and aesthetics is actually not just the study of what is or is not beautiful, but is really the study of awareness, of consciousness, of the capacity we have to make judgments of how we can respond to our environments. So art is taking your skill to distill experience in some form where you may share it with other individuals to communicate your ideas about how you know you are responding to your environment or how you may wish for others to respond to the environment. So obviously this is a very powerful uh, tool that communicates symbolically and it's something, as far as I'm aware, that only human beings really participate in. Yes, I know you have those things, the elephant painting pictures and chimpanzees, they don't stretch canvas, they don't make brushes, they don't mix paints. If they're handed a tool by a human being, they may respond in the way an elephant or a chimpanzee or a bonobo will respond. But people communicate symbolically. People make art. People have this urge to pass ideas from one to the other and sometimes from generation to generation. So art is the seminal tool for this transmission of knowledge, awareness, understanding, ideas. All right. Appreciate your time. We're going to take a little break and uh, come back with some more with Frank Martin. So everybody stay tuned.